And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, fellow coach, Jonathan Marcus. John, how's it going? Steve, it's going great. The clubhouse is blowing up. We're giving the people what they want, and the people are giving the people what they want. It's phenomenal. Oh, yes. It's great. And you know what I'm excited about? So far in Clubhouse, I'm going to call it phase one. We just kind of threw it out there, said, hey, here's, I think we've got 150 people on there. Like, have at it. Phase two is coming soon, Mm. which is mini courses in the Clubhouse. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I'm really excited for it. Working on the five-tier mini course. So going over Peter Coe, Frank Horwell's Joe V. Hills, Vin Lanana's classic five-tier applied, adopted, and elevated systems. It's super duper awesome. It's coming. You know what's so cool about this is that I love this. Is like We're trying to figure out how to do things better, and we have our courses, which I think are phenomenal. They go deeper into training than anything you're going to find anywhere on the internet. Um, but what's great is now we have this other thing this clubhouse where it's like we get to have these mini courses which allow for interaction real time Mm -hmm. and to get that feedback where often courses which are more lecture based giving presentations podcast exclusive stuff training logs like you don't get that back and forth so we're bringing that in so this is awesome like it essentially the format is there's a lecture right and then there's like a week where like scholars get to ask questions you know, it's like office hours, a seminar type thing, and then another lecture. And it's just this beautiful back and forth as we envision it. And it's just going to be game changing for sure. And you get to tell us what you think right away. So get on board, join the clubhouse. How do you do that? You become a running scholar member, sign up, join, get in the club. That's it. Get in the club. Change your life. All right. So let's dive into this week's topic, podcast topic, which I think will be very interesting. The science of training loads. Mm. Developmental, retentive, restorative. So what we have here is, you know, John, you and I were talking offline to set this up. And what we have here often is we make this mistake of throwing all training loads, all stimuli to get adaptation in the same bucket, right? A mile is a mile. Everything has equal weight. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Hard workout is a hard workout. We look at some crazy work or some workouts. We think they're crazy. How do they do that on their easy day? You know, if you've gone through our, our Canova course, sometimes you look at that their quote unquote easy or moderate day and you're just like, huh? What? Like, no. huh? this is a lot of stuff. Or as you've heard us talk about and in the future, you'll see on when we dive into Alan Webb's training, you're going to look at, you know, the easy day. And you're going to have the same response that I did or as we've talked about in other podcasts, Lindsay Gallo, NCAA champion had, which is, holy crap, I'm spending like four hours on an easy day and all I did was run like seven to eight miles and then a whole bunch of other stuff. How in the world is that quote unquote easy or restorative? 
that's what we're going to dive into. Whew. Yeah, I think, you know, to me, there's a gap in understanding and sensitivity towards this because it's detailed. And the unfortunately, people like simple and we gravitate towards the simple explanation. But, you know, nine times out of ten, complex adaptive phenomena is not simple. It's complex. It's detailed. So we have to understand and be humble to that regard and saying, yeah, it's easier just to call all miles of equal weight and import and say I ran 100 miles this week. But the question is, how much of that training of that, uh, how many of those miles were developmental, restorative, and retentive? That's a little tougher to dissect. And then when you start to look at that and go, oh, maybe like I ran 60 miles of restorative work. And then I ran 20 miles of developmental. And I ran 20 miles of uh, retentive. It provides a much different complexion to your week versus saying I just ran 100 miles and we'll call it good seat. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think here... <laughs> What what do we maybe let's start with this. What do we mean, John? And I'm gonna throw this question out here for you. Let's define developmental, retentive, and restored. So I go when I define this, I think of uh enzymatic signalings. So developmental loads are loads that result in breakdown, catabolic. So that's when the catabolic enzymes, protein enzymes, get in and start to do what they do, right? and the hormones as well. So that's what a developmental load does. And there's different grades in developmental loads, right? There's actually three grades. The best system I have is from uh, either, I forget, it's either Viru or Verkashansky. And it's a, you know, five grade system. And, um, you know, uh, number one is restorative. Number two is um, retentive. Number three is what they call a substantial developmental load. Number four is what they call a heavy developmental load. And number five is the highest. It's called extreme developmental load. So depending on the severity of the developmental load, whether it's a three, four, or five, depends on the catabolic consequences post-workout. And those catabolic consequences tend to manifest at their peak about 24 to 36 hours post-workout. The hard easy principle, right, that we intuitively figured out is because of this enzyme signaling. The two-day lag rule that if you read, you know, Mari LaCour, um, Bill Dellinger work, uh, you know, Ron Dawes' work with Lydiard, that two-day lag rule is because of the severity of work they were doing, they would still experience, um, you know, kind of deflated or catabolic effects 48 hours after the workout, right? But then you start to peak out of it. And you start to get what we call the supercompensation effect, where actually the anaerobic enzymes, the rebuilding ones, start to come in and do their job and to build you back up. So any developmental load to me is anything that signals a certain degree of severity of the catabolic enzymes. Then we look at, say, the retentive loads. That's where there is a very short signaling of any catabolic, very minimal. And you're talking about 12 to 24 maximum our time horizons. And the restorative loads is nothing, none, no catabolic process whatsoever. It's complete anabolic. It's that easy on the system. And when I think we take a, the science approach and we look through that lens, a lot of training rhythms and training progressions start to make a lot of sense 
but as long as you know it, as long as we don't pay homage to the fact that there's these complex hormonal and enzymatic processes happening after you do some type of work, then it's kind of like you are um, groping around in the dark and not sh- not knowing which way's up or down or what direction you're going. Love it. So I, you know, I use a slightly different vocabulary, but same exact thing, which is I call developmental building, right? You're either building something. I call retentive maintaining, and then I call restorative restorative, you know, your or recovery, like you're building something, you're maintaining something, which means the load, that balance you talked about, about breakdown or build up, it's about even. And maintaining, we're not digging a hole, we're not creating a de- deficit, and that restorative is, man, we're trying to enhance that 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 building, right? That get back to a place where we can we can uh, get in a positive adaptation st- state. Now, let's talk about how this um, how this translates to workouts, and I'm going to use an example here because I think this is where we get lost on this is way back when I was a high school coach, coaching high school kids, volunteering, there was a very successful team that would do a relatively hard workout, you know, and well, let me step back. In our classic understanding of workouts, they would do a hard workout the day before a race, right? They would do some 400-meter repeats at maybe 5K pace, somewhere in that range. And you'd watch them, you know, and you'd be like, why in the world are these people doing this workout the day before when everyone else is jogging around? Okay. Well, <clears throat> in the classic sense, we see it as like, that's a hard workout. That's going to create fatigue. They're in trouble. But here's the thing, like this was their norm. This is what they did. Like this was their training program, whether it was right or wrong or indifferent. Like this was no longer creating a stimulus that was putting them in a hole because they did it literally before just about every race, right? Flash forward, you know, a year or two, working with uh, Ryan Doner, Getting them ready to make uh, for the NXN regional. He was coming off the state meet. State meet didn't go so well. He got seventh or eighth place, something like that. Was expected to get first or second. Um, Just felt flat. You know, we came off, did our workout Monday or Tuesday. I forget what it was. And still doesn't feel that great. What are we going to do? You know what? I think it was two days before the meet, something like that. We inserted hill sprints. You know, I was just like, you know what? We're going to do hill sprints. Normally, two days before me, we do some jogging, some strides, you know, whatever. But no, we're going to do hill sprints. You're going to sprint like, you know, for eight seconds up a hill max. You know, repeat that six to eight times. Full recovery, whatever you want, but max. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, this is kind of a risk because like you're sprinting, right? Two days before a meet and up a hill. Like some people might be like, oh, this has kind of caused me to feel, feel, you know, sore and tired and fatigued and all this different stuff. But here's what I knew about Ryan 
and here's what I knew about hill sprints. We had been doing hill sprints, often weekly, <laughs> um, since, you know, his track season ended in May. So especially in the summer, I think that year we did them at least weekly, entire summer. So two, three months of, of training hill sprints every day. And then throughout the season, we'd, we'd sprinkle them in. So this kid was adapted to hill sprints, man. Like his body knew what they were, knew how to rebound. They were always, you know, after the first couple times, you know, they stopped being a huge stimulus because we gradually increased about eight and then settled at eight and went into maintenance mode. Well, you do that enough. Guess what? Your body knows what to expect. It's no longer a damaging st stimulus. You no longer get that that kind of catabolic or even negative neural impact. And instead, it literally transfers into what I'd call a restorative activity. Why? Yeah, because you probably also get testosterone boost. <laughs> right. Yes. You get you get this nice boost without the catabolic because you're used to it. And you get this nice neural firing where your legs are like, oh yeah, right. We're sprinting. I remember this. Like we've gone through this enough. Wake up legs. And guess what? Like a couple days later, NXN regional, like kids on fire wins wins the race over his um, his rival at that time, Parker Stinson, another very good runner in high school and then beyond, and you know makes it to NXN and then I think got ninth or tenth at NXN somewhere around the same place he got at the state meet. But anyways, the idea here is like you know sprinting uphill might seem crazy and it might seem nuts before race, but because he was adapted to it because it was be like his body knew what to expect because like there was no longer this huge kind of catabolic breakdown from this max effort thing. It's restorative. It primes him to run fast. Love it. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things there, like the intelligence of that protocol, Steve is there is an anabolic effect because we know that near max, you know, again, sprinting is not max speed. Let's remember this, people. You know, it's uh, sprinting is near max, kind of that 95, 98% of your max. Max speed is max speed. That's that's the all out you can do. And that's very tough to do and sustain. But going uphill also ensures that the lengthening of the hamstring in the eccentric phase is not quite as pronounced ring at very high force outputs. So you're not going to get as sore because what creates DOMS, right, is the eccentric loading component. So that's the brilliance of doing it uphill rather than on a track. Because on the track, soreness might manifest because of the high eccentric load. And then two, because of the time horizons you used, 10 seconds of maximum force output or near max force output, you get this anabolic catalyst, provided you're not doing you know, in an enormous amount of them, right? You're doing six to eight. It's 60 seconds to 80 seconds of that type of work. And we know that that stuff has about a two and a half minute global workload time horizon before it starts to shift from that type of work from um, being interpreted as catabolic to anabolic. So it's, it's, it's actually a very safe workout in a lot of ways, in <laughs> a very smart workout. And when someone's feeling flat, or fatigued and provided the stimulus is familiar, which is more restorative, which allows loads to be restorative or retentive. That's essentially the best way to think about it, right? If a load is familiar to the athlete and they've been conditioned towards it, it's not necessarily stimulating. 
it might it, it might fall into either the retentive or restorative category. And so hats off to you, Steve, and hats off for to donor for at that you know moment being really um, uh, intelligent and getting the right stimulus at the right time to help elevate the athlete for what matters most performance. Yep. And I, I, you know, well, thanks, but I, I, I think a lot of this is, and this is kind of the, the point of this podcast and what we're hoping to dive into. A lot of it is we see these workouts through this lens that was very revolutionary at the time and very much needed of looking at, oh, like when we go on the track or we do intervals or we do fart licks or we do tempo runs, like that is a hard day right? Hard, hard day. And then we do easy runs. We run slow. That is the easy recovery day. But what we've lost a little bit is that nuance that we're trying to get at. And we need to like take our lens of hard, easy, you know, off and be able to see, okay, what are they adapted to? And, you know, what stimulus does that give both from a training adaptation, but also from a hormonal recovery adaptation standpoint as well, because it's easy to look at, you know, and a couple weeks ago, we did a, uh, a podcast that talked about famed high school coach, Joe Newton. It's easy to look at some of that work and be like, how do they recover? How is, how is this happening? Like, this is really hard work because you see it through the old or the the kind of ingrained hard easy lens. Yeah, and the interesting thing is so, you know, the way Joe Newton just to uh not to rehash it all but just to refamiliarize with ourselves, the way he structured workouts was during the high school season to have 45 minutes of easy, you know, aerobic retentive running and then from that some calisthenics or what we call dynamic drills, 10 times 100 meters at strides, then the main developmental part of the workout. So all that stuff before was considered warm up or retentive. Then you had the main developmental workout, right? Long intervals, short intervals, you know, mid-length intervals, what have you. And then you had the one times 300 meter handicap or 300 meters at like the practicing end of the race fatigue sprint um, kick. And then another handful of hundreds, whether 10 to up sorts of 25. Where do you get this idea? Well, it was kind of a, com- a combination of Peter Coe's encouragement to say, hey, to run fast, you got to run fast every day. And then also actually Igloy. Because when you look at Bob Shule's training and Igloy's training, they considered as integral parts of development or, um, excuse me, as preparation and re- retentive and, and even restoration before and after workouts, the main body of the workout doing 10 times 100. If you look at uh, Bob Shule's book, um, you know, on uh, speed work for marath- mile to marathon, he explicitly states like the between the set series. So to the restorative thing to do between what he considers the, the developmental work series of a workout is 10 by or eight by 100 range. Do 10 by eight, 10 to eight by 100. And the, the interesting thing about like Igloy and this protocol that people really discredit is the fact it's working the a very intelligent metabolic time horizons because they're taking 50 meter, usually about 50 meter, 20 meter walk. How long a time is that, right? Well, if you take a wheel, go go walk, 50, 20 meters, wheel it out. It's 
approximately 20 to 30 seconds to walk that period of time. So it's this interesting phenomenon where you are getting some aerobic enzyme activity. You're running faster, and because you're running faster, you're actually getting better joint angles and ranges of motion that are more, as Bonnerchuk would say, specific to the competitive exercise of what you want to do, which is run fast for your given race distance. And you're being able to build this endurance quality of moving your hips and legs at the appropriate lengths and frequency to then endure come race day. Wildly brilliant when you sit and think about it from all sides. But if you just look at it from the seat where you sit, and you might not be employing that on a regular basis, and then you see a week in Joe Newton's training, and you see, what? They're doing 3K worth of hundreds before and after? This, oh, you're overtraining the athlete. What's wrong with you? No, they're not. Those are actually, those hundreds are either restorative or um, retentive in nature. So it's, they would actually be poor for not doing it based off their training protocol. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought the, that up. Because if you look at Igloy's training, if you look at Bob Schul's training, again, not to plug, but a lot of which you can see in the Scholar program, we go deep on everything, but or by Bob Schul's book as well, you see this 10 by 100 at the beginning of every workout, at the end of every workout. Then let me tell you a story. Um, back when I was in college, I went out and spent a week training with Joe Douglas. Oh, yeah. And Joe trained with Bob and Igloy. Exactly. And he was like, you know, and I was just, I was like, you know, Tom Telez worked with Joe Douglas. He's like, you want to go see what it, see what Joe does? Like, this will be good and helpful on your coaching because like he's one of the few guys who still does Igloy stuff. I'm like, yeah, great. Let's do it. So I remember being put through a couple workouts because I was like, let's just, you know, just give it a go. Coach me how how you would and how Igloy would. And at the beginning of every workout, it's like, all right, 10 by 100. Let's do this. And it's what it is. It's this 10 by 100 with essentially what I'd call turnaround rest. Yes. Right. Yeah. Immediately turn around. You do a, you do 100 and then you decelerate. You stop, you turn around, you do it again. It's about 20 meters or so of, of, you know, quote unquote, that your body mass moves. But it's like, what, maybe five to eight seconds, maybe 10 seconds at most of rest? Yes, it's very, very short. Exactly. So it, it's interesting. And, you know, after going through this and experimenting and like I experiment with adding in and adding in because I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And it does after you get adapted to it you get this, it becomes this kind of just retentive maintaining thing where it's like, oh, this is what I do. Um, the other thing that is really interesting about this, and if, you know, I talked to Joe Douglas about this, Bob Schul mentions this, he's, and you can utilize that 10 by 100 or a variation within other workouts to get a little of this, like restorative nature it's like um, a lactic buffering flush an aerobic flush it's phenomenally smart (laughs) exactly so they would do stuff like let's say we've got i don't know we're doing sets of five by 400 at mile pace and you're doing like three to four of these sets so it's a really difficult workout well you get through two to three sets and you're going mile pace and you're starting to 
and this is the brilliance of Igloy and that system and Shul and Douglas is, you know, they start to see you break down a little bit. They're watching your mechanics. They're watching how you look and they start to see you break down. You know, sometimes we'd be like, oh, let's just call it. You're breaking down. Not in Igloy world. No, no, no. <laughs> Igloy world, it would be like you finish the 400, you come back and you'd be like, all right, you know, let's jog 200 meters and then let's do 10 hundred uh, turnaround, you know, rest. And we'll do them at, you know, fresh, which fresh effort is again it's not sprinting it's doing it essentially where you're running fast but you're doing it with uh, what i'd call like total relaxation roughly you know for a modestly or elite male middle distance listener it's about 20 seconds for the 100 that's fresh roughly so you're just it's it's fast enough where it's it's you're still having to do it but what it does is it gives this kind of, as you said, this kind of lactate dealing with that stuff, clearing stuff out. You're running fast enough or you're you're getting the aerobic system up a little bit and short rest, but not tapping into anaerobic. And then you get done with that 10 hundred and it keeps your heart rate elevated. The other thing, right? It's not like you plummet off the, the face of the earth. You get down with that 10 hundred, you come back to the set and you're able to do the set. Right. And notice how like they employed it in high glycolytic capacity work where you are getting this acidosis flush into the system. And, you know, it's easy to tell you don't need a lactate monitor to prick someone's finger every interval to see where the lactate levels are in glycolytic um, capacity type work. You just do what the coaches have done for you. Watch the break. Oh, the form's breaking down. Their stride length is shortening. They are getting highly acidic. Great. Instead of pulling the plug on the workout and being like, oh no, we don't, we don't want too much acidity building up in the muscles. Well, for milers and even for any runner, you want to create a little bit of tolerance, lactate tolerance. And this is a great way to prolong work, prolong exposure to get that quality tolerance throughout the session. And remember, Shul and Igloy sessions, these things last 90 minutes to three hours. They're highly aerobic activities, even though at no point is the on or developmental load of the interval over 300 meters, except in rare instances when they are trying to do something sophisticated. Because the brilliance of Igloy is he attempted to get you, uh, you know, with that system to run with as much force production as possible, as best a stride length as possible, and mechanics as possible, but then also take these micro intervals, the true intervals and like really short intervals to prolong that capacity before breakdown or the glycolytic acidosis breakdown started to occur. And then he had strategies about how to buffer and rejuvenate you mid-workout versus, oh, take a sloppy, mechanically sloppy 400 meter jog shuffle. You can do it that way too, but the global effect is that's more of a junk neuromuscular a junk movement property to do a sloppy 400 meter jog versus higher grade quality hundreds at say marathon type pace with the turnaround recovery brilliant yeah it, it, yeah it is and i think the other thing that is very interesting here is i think from a mechanical and neuromuscular standpoint i think from a recovery sense it helps a lot more especially within the workout and even at the end of the workout 
than the jog. And if you asked, you know, because I did, asked, you know, Douglas, for example, who's a Goy disciple, right? Trained with them. Um, I was like, why do we do these hundreds afterwards? You know, after you've done your workout, et cetera, et cetera. Because the hundreds started the cool down, right? Yep. Yep. And it was like, oh, it's simple. It's It's a transition. Why would we go from running you know, 460 seconds to jogging eight minute miles or whatever you're doing. It's like, this allows you to utilize some of that lactate, like get rid of it, clear it, train your body up and you're doing it and you're transitioning from running 60 seconds to eight minute pace by doing this again, five minute ish kind of work. So it's super restorative and it's like, and it makes you feel better the next day because you don't have this abruptness. It still gives a little bit of that spark pep mechanically that is also because you always, you do them out fresh, right? Mm-hmm. And fresh is, you know, feeling good. And Another that's, yeah, it's, it's by feel too. That's the important yeah. thing to remember. Like it's not There's, strict on a time. And this is what Lydia was really good at. Igloy was great at, Sarity was great. That that whole generation of 1950s and 60s and 70 coaches, a lot of the training was based off of interpretation and feel of the athlete. If you had to hold a gun to their head and make them write down times, like Lydia did with his tables of quarter, half, and three quarters effort, they would do it. But they knew that that was just a very rough roadmap. And the map is not the territory here. And my favorite Lydia quote is like, you know, the reporter's asking Lydia, watching Pierce Nell do a workout. How far is he going? I don't know. How fast he's going? I don't know. When's he going to stop? I don't know when he gets tired. <laughs> and it's just because Lydia's like, no, he he knew and he, he Snell knows the intent and the sensations that he's trying to get out of this session and is running towards that versus being so... Um, uh, concerned about the interval or time on the stopwatch. And that's what Lydia was fighting when he fought interval training was he's fighting the crippling, um, you know, handcuffing of directing training towards what the clock says in training versus the athlete's interpretation of training. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, they were geniuses at understanding feel. And it's interesting because like Lydia and Sarity to a large degree and others in that area, like they came about this backlash from the very uh, controlled, measured um, Fran Stample kind of approach, which was stopwatch, et cetera, because the stopwatch was relatively new at that point. And it was the thing. And now we're kind of facing the same <laughs> same spot. Oh, yeah. it says stopwatch. It's like GPS and HR. It's like all these tracking things that yeah, give strop, us pre- uh, whatever. Yeah, but they, they give us precision um, where often we're not. And the, the you know to circle back and maybe tie a bow on this this hundreds workout because I think this is gets to everything is you know the key is they weren't always run at fresh. They were done to prepare the athlete or give the stimulus that you want it, right? So for example, in prepping for the workout as what are these 10 hundreds? A lot of times, or, you know, when I was out there with Joe, for example, we, he would have me do, you know, Steve, we're going to do 10 hundreds, but I want you to go, um, 
two fresh, one hard, right? Or one fresh, one hard. Well, what are you doing there is you're you're now having one where it's like, okay, go hard. And then another fresh, another fresh after this. So you're you're getting this kind of nice neuromuscular stimulus and you know, it's short, but introducing a little bit of, of uh, anaerobic kind of lactate into the system, then get rid of it. Yeah, it's a and very specific lactate clearance workout. session. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you have these variations in it. And, you know, and the other thing I would say is like we're talking about workouts, but you have to remember in the Igla world, especially like there were often intervals, you know, five, six days a week. Um so it's like they were doing this 10 by 100 on and off before and after at least like workouts every day, often twice a day. So it becomes so ingrained that it's either retentive maintenance or restorative because depending on how, how you're utilizing it, because you're just used to it. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, if you think about it, if you look at it, you're getting a minimum of 2K worth of that type of stimulus per session. And they worked out twice a day, every day, except Sunday. Um, and most times they use it, like we said, as an active, a very specific active recovery modality in the middle of a workout to freshen you up for the next part of the highly difficult glycolytic type work. So another two to four, or I mean, another, um, you know, one to two to sometimes even in the longer workouts four. So you do the math and you're getting 2K to 6K worth of the stimulus per workout twice a day for weeks on end. And the body adapts to that, right? And this has value. Why? Well, it has value because, you know, it provides a very specific neuromuscular coordination pattern to the brain about how to move. And the thing, you know, I want to remind everyone is like when you're lifting a weight, if you're lift, you know, let's say you're doing a bench press, a simple activity, the bar versus the bar plus 25 pounds on each side versus the bar plus 45 pounds on each side. <clears throat> Every weight is a different neuromuscular pattern to the brain, even though the movement pattern looks very similar. <clears throat> this is the same is true for running speeds. So whether you're running seven minute pace, eight minute pace, six minute pace, five minute pace, whatever. Those are all different movement patterns because the joint angle, the hip extension, and the hip flexion is all different. The reactivity profile of the calf and Achilles and the hamstring is all different. So when you're training, you're saying, yeah, I'm running 100 miles a week, but 70 of it is at, or 80 of it is at, you know, restorative efforts, really, really easy oxidative paces. You, yes, you are training the cardiovascular system. You're improving the efficacy of the heart, the blood. There, that, but you can get that modality or that training effect through other modalities like cycling, swimming, long hikes, if you like. I mean, it doesn't have to be easy jogging. Jogging is just the most, um, the most specific cousin to running fast. But this is why people misunderstand, like, say, the Kenyan shuffle. I mean, you could do other modalities to get that oxidative aerobic impact, but that's a restorative activity like a massage to prep you for the, or take you out of the hard, um, highly glycolytic or acidosis or catabolic workout you did in the morning or the day before. And just as you don't count a massage as training, you don't count restorative running as training in my worldview. Yeah, there's like load on terms of foot contacts and everything, but the magnitude of the load's not as great because, you know, the foot's not getting that far and high off the ground, right? 
but you can choose either one, any one you want. And a lot of times when people say, oh, I bought my miles, they choose to up the miles in the restorative department versus what we really need to do is up the exposure or the miles, if you want, in either the maintenance or development department to increase the runner's running economy, speed, efficacy, and ability. So it's when we dissect it and think about developmental retentive and restorative loads, the plan of progress gets a lot more clarified and simpler and also easier to navigate versus if we're just out there going like, oh, every every mile has the same value. And so, yeah, you know, you they're running this many miles a week. They're running that miles a week. Remember with Lydiard, in the marathon phase, they're running 100 miles a week at six-minute pace and faster. I cannot stress that enough. It's 100 miles at six-minute pace or faster. I do not know many people. And everyone's like, oh, Lydia, yeah, we, all, we do Lydia training. So are you running 100 miles a week at six-minute pace or faster for your developmental or your general prep period? The answer for most people is no. Um, but they're getting in 100 miles of work but we're just misinterpreting the value and the stimulant that that work has and then getting really frustrated because we're bonking on marathon day and hitting the wall. Like as Canova says, there is no wall in the marathon. The wall is just a symptom of poor preparation. Yeah. You know, I love that. Um, two things that, that come to mind here. Um, I'll give you an example. And we wrote about this, Brad and I in peak performance and it's a well-known story. Um, Roger Bannister, what did he do before he broke four, you know, the week or so before week or two before mm. he went on a hike, multi-day, you know? multi-day trek, multi-day hike, you know, why just what you talked about. It's restorative, you know, it's like often we get the shuffle Kenyan shuffle and we think, Oh, this is like, we got to get the miles in. It's the restorative, you know, um, and the other thing I'll, I'll point out, because I saw this from a fellow coach, and this is more of a data scientist and coach who works with triathletes, Alan Cousins, but he posted this wonderful graphic um, analyzing all of these all of his athletes' training and found that essentially if we're looking at fitness, like aerobic fitness, there is a minimal threshold of you know, intensity that you need to cross to get any sort of aerobic fitness. And his research, again, his analysis said, you know, once you get below about 50% VO2 max, which is, you know, about 60, 65% heart rate, max heart rate. So you're looking, if you got a heart rate of uh, a max heart rate of 200, you're looking at, you know, 125, somewhere in that range off the top of my head. Um, once you get below that, like you're not, you're not gaining fitness. No, what is this research? You know, shows and it's pretty clear. Like there's above that, you have variations of stimulus. But then, and I love this. In one of his tweets, he says, "Despite this, I still plan about twenty percent of my athletes' training to be below fifty percent VO two max, sometimes more. Why? Despite not offering anything to fitness." What we see in the measurement is that training, which can be nature walks, yoga, whatever you want to call it, this active recovery literally subtracts fatigue from the system. 
And that's that's what it is. So when you see that Kenyan shuffle, right? And you see, oh my gosh, you know, Ka- uh, Kipchoge is running, you know, eight, nine, nine minute minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and uh, there was a wonderful article and some videos that were uh, were tweeted out on Kipchoge lately by uh, the Irish journalist uh, Cathal Dennehy who went out and spent some time with him and watched the training and did some running. And there's this video of him shuffling on a nine minute pace for one of his runs. What is that? Subtracting fatigue. Yes. Right. Restorative. Restorative. If you want, like literally, and we're not talking about your easy days. We're not saying go replace all of your normal easy runs with walks. Right. We're talking about the restorative, the shuffle. Right. Not the Lydiard go run 10 miles at six minute pace or for other people, 630 pace or whatever it is in that that kind of range. We're talking the shuffle. If you wanted to, you could literally go for a nice brisk walk and you, you know, get pretty much the same benefits. Yeah, without a doubt. (laughs) And 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 it might be. You know, tying it all together on this, it might be, again, why if you look at way back in the day, they did do a lot of long walks. Like, that was part of the training program. Um, And I mean, Lydiard even said, you know, yeah, you can jog as much as you want. Go ahead. Go jog. It was very clear in the days of Lydiard and Bowerman what jogging was. And jogging is this great aerobic introduction development activity for the absolute deconditioned person, right? So it's a stimulating load. It's a developmental load on the cardiovascular system, but it's only training one system. And that's, remember, the cardiovascular benefit from restorative aerobic training uh, modalities. And remember, these are really discrete time horizons too, 20 minutes to 50 minutes. If you're a little bit more conditioned, maybe an hour, but that's it. If you look at like Nick Boudot's training with his Australians, um, you know, you'll see this zone one, you know, uh, activity where it's 60 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the evening in zone one, but it's a restorative load that is spliced in between the higher stimulating or developmental loads of the hard workouts that come the day before and the day after. Because again, Nick's really smart and he understands you're in this catabolic window. And so to expedite the um, departure out of the catabolic window, what do you do? These fatigue subtracting activities. People are often shocked when I say, oh yeah, you can just go for a walk. But coach, I'm not getting the miles in. Like we're not trying to get the miles in. Like the, what, what miles are we getting in? Like if you run too hard, right? And you add to your fatigue on your restorative days, then you have to wait even longer for the anabolic protein enzymes to start signaling and kick back in. And let's remember the root of the word restorative is rest. So when you hear people talk about rest, that's how you have to view that training activity as it's a restful endeavor. It's, it might not be, it's better than no activity because we know that some activity creates this you know, passive recovery, which is very, very, you know, apt and useful. And this is where we've gotten a little off track, I think, is the restorative activities are response to the developmental activities. 
So it's a, it, it's a balance, right? It's a yin and yang, night and day. You do this really extreme or heavy or substantial developmental load, you then do a restorative load afterwards as a response to that as you would a massage. And when, we, when you step back and you delete out of training and delete out of your um, mileage um, tracking uh, uh, met, uh, accounting, the restorative loads, and then you look at actually how much training you are doing, it might be a lot less than you think because what you have to look at what is what is truly developmental. And this is where the 80-20 polarized training Steven Seiler crowd kind of goes a little off path. So Seiler's right. You look at like the Kenyans training or, you know, high-end, um, you know, aerobic-based endurance athletes training, it looks 80-20. But the question is, is that 80% of easy maintenance or I should rather say easy restorative load actual training in terms of, you know, sure, cardiovascular system development could be, but for people at that level, not really. They've already tapped out. And then it's not training from a, uh, a neuromuscular motor recruitment standpoint because you're not getting the joint angles and ranges of motions that are the actual, as Bonnerchuk would say, competitive exercise. So it's not training. The 20% of training is so severe that, yeah, they need to then, and they are doing this uh, restorative expediency stuff so they can then, again, go and do the severe stuff. But you can't do that so much of that severe stuff because of the catabolic breakdown that that has. And is when we interpret it through that lens, it makes a lot more sense. But if we give equal import to all steps in training as being the same, that's when we start to like, you know, as they say, lose the forest for the trees. Yes. And I think, I think you're right. I think that often we see, especially in the world, we simplify it. We see this 80, 20 and we think 80% should be easy. Siler's work is great genius again for, for where it was coming out of. Um, but like anything, we can lose the nuance around this stuff, Right. And we jumble all this stuff together and we divide it 80, 20, 80% easy, 20% hard. But there's a lot of nuance on all of this stuff. Like what I often like to say is, well, if you look at that 80, 20 and you look at, you know, depending on their zone model, they break down. That could be anywhere from, you know, for a high level runner from 530 pace all the way to 10 minute pace. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially if they go with the three zone model instead of the five zone model. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So you're looking at, you're looking at a wide variation <laughs> in potential stimulus. Mm -hmm. And it does matter on like how much and where you, where you put that in, you know? And I think that's where we can't kind of get lost. And that's why I think we, you know, John and I go over this Canova and Igloy and Lydiard and all these others so much and Bowerman and all these so much because like they were they were figuring this stuff out. Right. And even if they didn't have I mean, Canova does to a degree, but didn't have the access to some of the modern knowledge that we have now. Uh, what they were really good at is understanding the nuance of training. And the other thing that I'll say as well, and I'm jumping all over here, but I think it's important, is that every single training intervention you have to see as like a response to what was going on at that time. 
right? Which is why you look at Lydiard, you see what is he responding to? He's responding to like Stamfel and and intervals. You look at Bowerman, like and Lydiard, like why did they bring hard and easy? Because up to that point, you know, the idea was coming off of Zadabek. What are we doing? 400s every day. Every day. All the time. Which there's, you know, Zadapek made some some vital um, improvements in training. But like it, it's it's a response to things. Why do we have Siler 80, 80, 20? Well, it was a response to kind of the Peter Co. and then VO2 Max era where it's like, hey, wait a minute. That 20% is really important. But like this 80% matters too. Let's not forget about that. Mm-hmm. And that's in when we talk about balance, where right, you know, balance is overrated. It's 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 response, and that that's really what balance is about. That's really what peak performance is about. You do something. What is the correct response after you do something to help heighten and intensify and multiply the ad- adaptive reconstruction of the body to that response? And it's just how like you know you need for plants to grow. You need both water and sun, <laughs> but you can't get them at the same time, right? At least where I live in Oregon, it doesn't happen. You know, so it's like we spend all this time in like the Northwest with all this water. And then all of a sudden we get a lot of sun in spring and summer and things grow great. And then we go back to that cycle, a lot of water, less sun. Same situation here. And I think it's really important to understand the response of Lydiard and response of say Siler and all this stuff is not to the type of training, but the gross misinterpretation of the interval training, the gross misinterpretation of VO2 max training where people crave, we crave as human beings for simple narratives. It's what you're seeing a lot in the political zeitgeist at the moment. The candidates with the most simple narratives that are the most plausible tend to get a lot of emotional support because it's easy to wrap around our, our, our brain around simple. The hard work we have to do as adults and intelligent forward thinking people is to be able to be humble to the fact like things are really complex and we can't understand the complexity, but the nuance gives us more detail. And when you have a little bit more ingredients to work with for your narrative, it becomes not quite as cut and dry and straightforward as much as we would love it to be. So instead of it just being like, it runs many miles as you can run a week for a year and you get better, or you got to get up my miles to up my aerobic capacity. Like we know that mitochondrial biogenesis can develop in fast switch muscle fibers if you do this fresh type of running. This is why... Bob Schul is able to run 37 seconds for the last 300 on cinders in the rain in Tokyo and win the Olympic gold medal in the 5K. I cannot communicate how difficult that is <laughs> and how impressive that is. That would probably be, I don't know, with super shoes today, Steve, what, 31 seconds for 300? It'd be something insane. Like, and we tend to sometimes too also misinterpret i've realized reading through all all this training history the external conditions of racing whether it's technological based footwear or technological based services with synthetic tracks tend to be force multipliers that elevates everyone's ability overnight lydia complained about this in um 
uh, running the Lydiard way when they brought in synthetic tracks. He goes, these, you know, uh, club level guys are now running world-class times overnight. Why? It's not the training, it's the tracks, right? And that's what was happening in his era, converting from cinders and grass to synthetic. And then we think, oh, we've developed so much in terms of we've gotten faster or we've gotten better training methods. But really the reality is our, the, the techno technology upgraded. And when we have that humility to recognize that, we go, oh. Then we want to look back at the tried and true empirical methods that did work and worked well. And also see their faults, right? Remember, Lydia advocated for 100 miles a week of endurance training for sprinters as well. I mean, it's there in the literature. He says it. <laughs> and we know that's completely, um, you know, a little bit misguided. It's a little overzealous. But, you know, pick out the things that matter and pick out the places that they were right. Because what they were doing was they were just basically running these experiments, trials and errors. Like when you go back and read Run, 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 Run by Fred Wilp, there's an interesting uh, Soviet study on 600 schoolgirls that are um, pubescent schoolgirls, so age 12 to 16. And they put these 600 schoolgirls through a um, through three different types of training for the 800, for novice training for the 800. So the standard method, which is go run 800 every day all out. And then they put it through the um, you know interval-based method, right? So do 200-meter uh, intervals on short recoveries for, you know, um, 2k worth of work so 10 times 200 and we're gonna do that every every training session and they had three training sessions or two training sessions a week and then they had the um kind of ladder approach or what they called i think the wind up wind down approach where they would start with shorter intervals go up to a longer um rep and then go back down so kind of two four or six eight you know k12 and then back down the ladder and they did this week and they did this study for um, 12 weeks, right? 24 sessions or something of that nature. And what they found was the people who had the best rate of improvement. Remember, 200 schoolgirls in each category. That's a hell of a study, folks. Was the, um, the young ladies who participated in the, um, the wind up and wind down of the pyramid approach. The rate of improvement of the standard approach of just go run all 800 every day. Well, what happened was they got really good, really fast, mm -hmm. and then they burnt out hard. They got the monotony of training was like, I don't want to do it anymore. So like actually like halfway through the study, they all improved their times. Like everyone started out around like the 320 to 330, 800 meter range. That standard method, they improved their times to 258 at collectively. But then by the end of the study, they actually... Um, their progress uh, was retarded. They went back and they were running like 235 to, or 3, 335, 340. So over the long haul, what they started to see was that, yeah, Zatapec, remember Zatapec worked in very short time horizons. Like, hey, you need to get in shape. The, the, the race is in three weeks. Hey, you need to get in shape. The race is in six weeks. Okay, great. All intervals really hard. Hit this glycolytic system. And we know that you can hit that glycolytic system and get really short, um, advances and rapid advances in a bit fitness, but the res training residuals aren't sustainable. And this is where Lydiard had the aha moment was, was like, if we improve the aerobic efficacy of the system, then when we do hit the hill bounding to work on stride length, when we do hit, um, you know, the, uh, sprint interval period, the sharpening period, and we just run hard fast every day, the training residuals and overall athletes' um, interpretation of the activity and stress 
is just a lot more favorable and they're more engaged, they don't burn out, and then they also run faster because of that level of engagement. And this is what Stample understood with Bannister. It's like Stample just ran twos and 400s every day, right? It was just pretty simple, straightforward protocol. But as he saw later get burned out, he said, hey, go on a multi-day trek, get restored, chill out, come back with a fresh sense of import and purpose, and let's have after it for this mile attempt. Uh, you know, the, that's the brilliance of coaching is being able to interpret what's going on in the moment and know what buttons to push and what directions to lead an athlete to help their development. Yeah. You know, I, I think you summed it up perfectly there um, because it is. It's like having all these different tools and understanding what tool to pull out at, at, at what time to get the job done. And what you see in the great coaches. Um, is they're able to go away from what they're quote unquote known for, let's say, when the time, you know, when the time comes based on what the athlete needs. And I think that is what we're really getting after or trying to get at here when we look at this kind of nuance that we're bringing to the program or hopefully to the table is often what occurs is, you know, we get caught in our system we get stuck in our way way of mind our one lens to see see the training world through we look at it and we say oh my gosh this doesn't make sense like why how are they doing this a b and c and d well you have to zoom out and see again what is actually a stimulus what is just maintaining it that they've adapted to and then what is restorative and if you can see it through that lens based on their history what they're adapted to the training starts to make more sense and you can understand, you know, just like you said there, John, like how is Zatapak able to put together, you know, six weeks of 40 by 400? Well, that's, that's the reason, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, like see it through that lens. Don't see it through like, oh my gosh, how in the world does, you know, Zatapak do all these 400s? Like, I don't understand. That makes no sense. Right, because it was an era when they didn't train year-round. They just said, oh, all right, we got to get ready now. We have six weeks, eight weeks. It was very short-sighted and short-term, the training periods. And because of that, the, the best training method reflected that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's, I think, Steve, you know, overall, that's what we always have to ask ourselves as coaches when either looking at other coaches and our athletes' training or planning and progressing in interpreting the direction of our own training for our own athletes is, is this load for this athlete at this point in time, either restorative, retentive, or a variant of developmental? And when you can answer that, it makes a lot of, it's a lot more clear what's going on versus just knee jerk reaction, looking at something like Joe V Hills type work where they're running hard and fast to most people every day or you know, as we've talked about with Peter Coe or Joe Newton or Igloy, you look at it and say, this is crazy. And it's like, it's not because it, when you really start to dig, a lot of that work is retentive and restorative. The, the developmental load is actually not a whole lot. I mean, Igloy workouts, maybe a handful of 300s and 600s are actually what he considers developmental. And even though they didn't speak in that language at the time or the interpretation of it wasn't there, same thing with like Bowerman or Dillinger. You look at what's going on. You know, they're famous for uh, kind of progressing 
the load even within a, a, a rep or a set count, right? So they'll do like three, six times 300, too easy, too medium, too hard. Well, too easy is kind of this quasi-retentive load. Too medium is kind of this retentive-ish developmental load. And then too hard is like an extreme developmental load. And so it's not a lot of stimulus when you come and think about it, even though if you take a purely volume approach, you're like, oh, I'm shocked. It's just so much, um, you know, of fast running. How, 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 how is this possible? Well, again, they graduated the athletes through progressive adaptation to be able to withstand those stimulus as not being all of it being severe. And that's what we constantly have to think about in our own coaching and practices. What's the core stimulant or what's the core motor pattern we want? Marathon pace running, 3K pace running, what have you. And, you know, a lot of Soviet studies have shown that, you know, if you look at Bonnerchuk's transfer of running tables, a lot of the best work happens at one pace or one distance faster than your goal. Uh, distance and pace. So if you want to train, really be effective for training in a half marathon, train a lot of 15k pace. If you want to be really effective for a marathon, train a lot of half marathon pace. And this is, um, you know, again, corroborated by Canova and other elite coaches activity, Sammy Wanjurno's training. There's not a lot of long, slow running in the program. It's a lot of what we considered faster than race pace running. But because of that neuromuscular, physiological response and sensitivity to that just a little, you know, super max of your race pace type running. And this goes back, think of super max as Dillinger or Bowerman's goal pace. Your date pace was your current or, you know, sub max, but you're, they, and then they started transition, right? As throughout the year from a lot of date pace, heavy work in the beginning to a lot more goal pace. And then they built the bridge towards the athlete in training doing a lot of quote-unquote goal pace work so they could execute and have confidence executing on a race day worked simple brilliant like that and that's when you start to read these things and you understand this is what the principles and what steve and i are advocating for and always have and always will the principles of training are super sound because we're able to go from point a to point b in a progressively loading patient fashion and a lot of times we lose that patient parts or that progressive part and we get, you know, we want to do a rush job. But we know that, again, you can't um, deepen or quicken recovery. You can't deepen or quicken response to training loads with athletes. You can enhance and it by different uh, recovery modalities like sleep, nutrition, hydration. But the key is understanding this and this alone is development and progress takes time but as a coach depending on the duration of the work with an athlete you can develop them over the course of a season or the course of several years so what something that was once a developmental load becomes a retentative and even a restorative load and then that's how i view you know training and programming is where's the developmental load where's the complementary restorative loads when and where can we fit in retentive loads without compromising restoration or the ability to, um, you know, get the most out of the developmental load. And that's how I put together a training program or recipe is through asking those questions for that specific person at that specific time in their um, training program. Love it. So we'll hopefully that elucidates some of the complexity and gives you some nuance 
to think about. Again, it's it's might seem complex, but if you simplify it and put it in these kind of three buckets of, you know, that we've talked about building, maintaining, restoring, right? <laughs> Developmental, retentive, restorative, whatever you want to use, but put things in that based on the history, the athletes you're working with, what they're adapted to, what the stimulus applies. I think it'll help you as a coach to understand not only what you're doing, but also understand training that might look a little bit out there. So thanks again for listening. If you have if you want to go deeper on any of this stuff, especially Igloy, Canova, all that stuff, check out the Running Scholar program. We go deep, deep, deep on the history of training. And I think it will, you'll find it highly valuable. So check that out. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, everybody, talk to you later.